You are listening to the Enormo Cast. Remember, folks, that when you buy from our sponsors, you're supporting the Enormo Cast. And in turn, Black Diamond Equipment is supporting many of the organizations that are protecting our climbing areas and keeping access open, including the Access Fund and even the Nature Conservancy, the folks that hold the keys to many of the best cliffs in Indian Creek. In this month, Black Diamond Equipment is donating 1% of sales to the Nature Conservancy. So if you've got some goals in mind this spring and you need some gear, head over to blackdiamondequipment.com and pick up a few things for that manky rack or to put on your back to keep you warm and dry while charging that springtime mission. Black Diamond Equipment is a proud sponsor of the EnormaCast. So our friends over at the climbing zine have made it to double digits, if only by the skin of their fingertips. The once black and white punk rock style zine has been elevated to magazine status, but they never forget their roots. Volume 10, The Raw Issue, is a tribute to that. There's Patience by seminal master of prose and bouldering Chris Schulte. Fill the Void, a piece about overcoming an eating disorder and finding peace and self-esteem through climbing by Shea Skinner, and a touching tribute to Royal Robbins by his daughter Tamara. And don't forget about the Too Soon Poetry, a deliciously awkward zine trademark, plus the closing piece In Search of My Dirtbag Princess by Albert Kim. Sure to have the ladies searching after Albert while he crushes the cracks of Indian Creek wearing only silver sequin shorts. Volume 10, the raw issue of The Climbing Zine can be found at your local gear shop, bookstore, or climbing gym, or at www.climbingzine.com. We gotta get Listen, uh, uh, where are you playing in town? You, are you playing here? We're doing the, uh, the Normo Dome, whatever it is. It's terrific. Oh, it's yeah, big house. place. That's, out. Out. That's a big nice. place. You sold What's it that? out. I'll see. You really should. The hell are you doing? I couldn't sleep. I'm checking the ropes. There was a freight end on your rope, and I'm cutting it out. Today's show is brought to you by Black Diamond Equipment with support from Maxim Ropes and the fine folks at La Sportiva. And don't forget our charter sponsor, Bonfire Coffee. Go to bonfirecoffee.com and enter Enorma at checkout for a discount on great coffee and to support the Enorma cast. And now back to the show. Hello and welcome to the Enormacast. This is your host, Chris Clues. It is April 18th, about 9.30 here in Colorado. This is episode 127 of the Enormacast, a conversation with Eric Weinmayer. Have you heard of Eric Weinmayer? Blind guy, climb Mount Everest. Turns out he also kayaked the Grand Canyon. Yeah, can't see a thing. Kayak the Grand Canyon. Anyway, we'll get to that in just a minute. Things have been crazy here at Enormacast headquarters. Sick baby. Had a sick baby for a couple weeks. I know most of you single climbing dirtbag guys out there are like, who cares, Kaluz, get to the interview. Yeah, well, you haven't known dread till you've laid there wondering if that was your baby's last breath. Was that it? Seems kind of shallow. Nope, chest is rising again. Guess he's got one more in him. Nope, looks like he's got one more. Nope, still breathing. 
Yep, I think his chest moved again. Anyway, do that for six or seven days. Yeah, you think climbing's hard? But anywho, he's back to normal. Back to his little little self, his little pinner self. Definitely going to be a climber, this one. Super tiny. An ounce of fat on that little bag of bones. Okay, enough baby talk, huh? All right, well, Five Point Film Festival is also coming up in a couple days, so that's been really busy. Um, It'll be dead and gone by the time you get here to this podcast, but uh, I'm sure it was a great time. Got a live podcast in a couple days and doing some MC work. The band's playing. It's going to be an incredibly busy, busy weekend. Then it's off to Moab to guide some climbing. So that's what's going on here at the Enormacast Headquarters. That's what's going on at the Enormacast Headquarters. Do you care? Probably not that much. But you know what? This is my time. This is my time, the intro. Some people are like, you got to shorten the intro up, man. But this is my time. My time to talk to my peoples. Yeah, you guys can skip it anyway. You know how that button works. All right, let's talk about Eric, Eric Weinmayer. I got an opportunity to interview Eric through some of the people that work for him. And, you know, it seemed a little intimidating because, like, this dude's been on Oprah. Like, he's that big. He's been on Oprah. All right, Eric's blind. He is a climber, and he's climbed on Everest. He also has kayaked the Grand Canyon, has a new book out called No Barriers, about not just kayaking the Grand Canyon, but kind of his journey from a very angry teenager losing his sight to the place that he is now. Great book. Got it done before I interviewed him, and we talk a bit about it on the show. But you know, when I got this opportunity to interview Eric, I was kind of curious because you know, with the Everest thing, I'm always a little bit skeptical. Now, obviously, blind guy climbing Everest, incredible feat, very cool, can't take anything away from that. But I was curious about what kind of climber he really was. You know, some people tick that thing, it's sort of a feather in their cap, and the climbing is sort of secondary, or it's not really part of their lives beyond training for that and getting up there. So I was kind of curious, what is this guy all about when it comes to climbing? And uh, you'll find out, like I did, that, you know, dude's legit. He's legit. Now, of course, some people will sit there and say, well, why do you get to judge who's legit and who's not? Well, because I'm the Enormacast, and that's what I do, all right? But what I mean by that is not he's not an incredibly awesome climber. He hasn't ticked any sort of hard grade. But the thing is, is he talks about it. He believes in it. It's a part of his life in a way that I think is really authentic and that informs who he is. And I think he believes that without it, he'd be a completely different person. So that's the kind of thing I'm looking at. I don't care how hard you climb. I want it to sort of, at least to a certain extent, permeate your existence. Then we can talk. You know what I'm saying? And then you just have to admire a man, a person who faces his fears like Eric does. I mean, just imagine getting in a kayak on a river, even if you're a really good kayaker but then just close your eyes for the whole thing for days in that river. Like, that is unreal. Anyway, that's who we're talking to today. Great guy, invited me into his home, hung out, met some of his family, met the folks that work for him who are just in love with the guy because he's so positive, so generous. And it was just a really great time being around him for a few hours. So I hope you guys enjoy being around him for an hour as well. And let's get to it. The conversation with Eric Weinmayer. There's a long list of things that can cause you to fail on a climb. Fear, weak forearms, the moonshine the rando from Kentuck was passing around the fire last night. But you should never 
have to blame your shoes. And in a recent survey, podcast air quotes, Sportivas were the least likely shoe to be angrily whipped across a bouldering cave by that sweaty dude who thinks that blue V4 is totally V6. From legends like Demira to the Spry Otaki, Sportiva designs and builds climbing shoes to be loved, cradled, and cherished, not slammed in the dirt at the base of your proj in disgust. So if you want love, not hate, get on the good foot by swiping right to Sportiva.com or your nearest climbing retailer to check out the little bundles of love for your feet. Sportiva is a proud sponsor of the Enormacast. Cool. Well, uh, let's get started. Actually, you know, I wanted to ask you when someone like me and I don't, I don't have any close friends who are blind or anything yeah. like that. Are there like terms or anything that anybody worries about? Are, is that one of those, those sorts of things where there's landmines to talk about it? I don't think so. Okay. In fact, uh, people use the word blind. I think that's perfectly acceptable. Mm -hmm. Sort of funny. People are too politically correct. They say like, you're a person of sightlessness. Like <laughs> what? No, I'm not. I'm blind. And and then, as you remember in the book, yeah, Mark mm -hmm. Wellman loves the word gimp. Mm -hmm. And that's like one of those words. I don't even know if people know what that word is anymore, but it's uh, one of those words that I think you're, you're given the license to say if you're, if you're disabled in some way. But for him, it's like a badge of honor. Right, yeah. And, and actually, um, uh, DiMartino, you know, he's, he's another one that throws that thing around because that, that was yeah. the name of their film, The Gimp Monkeys, on yeah. when they were climbing El Cap. Uh -huh. um, but I get what you mean. It's a word that, you know, the community gets to use, and, and I think everybody else probably treads lightly on. Yeah, exactly. I think, um, wasn't it Paradox that had, uh, like, their, you know, it was like Ice Gimps or something yeah, like one of exactly. their... Yeah, and they, they had to change it because it just people weren't getting the joke. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> but uh, I like it. I think okay. it's funny. In fact, the first time Mark ever said it was on the climb we did of Ancient Art together, and I was mm -hmm. like, what does that even mean? And he explained his whole philosophy behind it. Uh, well, cool. I just wanted to sort of talk about that because it, I'm sure you're used to dealing with folks that are a little bit touchy around the subject. And, yeah. And, um, you know, having read the book, I, I just felt like you had, you actually had talked a bit about that in there with Mark and, yeah. and thrown the different terms around. But um, Yeah, he, nothing offends yeah. me. Okay. Well, we'll see about that. No. <laughs> <laughs> just nice. kidding. Um, but, uh, and you weren't born blind. It happened to you about what age? I went blind. Well, I went blind over time, mm -hmm. so I was born legally blind. Okay, okay. Meaning, that's like a legal term they use. Mm -hmm. Like, I, from like 20 feet, I could see what a normal person saw from 200 feet. So I was legally blind, but I could still see it well enough to play basketball and try to play baseball, run around the woods, you know, mm -hmm. running into trees, jumping off things. And uh, my sight got worse and worse by the time I was... Like I think it was a week before my freshman year is when I lost the last bits of sight and I I couldn't see well enough to take a step anymore and that's mm -hmm. like okay now I'm actually blind this is sort of freaking scary yeah it must have been terrifying it was scary because I mean before that I could always like tell myself that it wasn't really true and mm -hmm. you know the brain is like really powerful you know like. If you want to just deny something, the brain can easily do it. You just like make stuff up in your brain, like whatever you want to believe. I didn't eat my Cheerios this morning, so that's why I'm not seeing like I did yesterday, or mm -hmm. the sun's in my eyes, or I don't know, your brain can make up anything. And so, yeah, I, but even though I was, the doctor said, hey, there's no cure for this, you will be blind by an early teenager, 
I just blocked it out. Mm -hmm. And and so when I actually went blind and I couldn't take a step, it was like getting hit in the head with a baseball bat. You're like, oh my God, what is this? You know, it's like a door closing. So you're you're kind of in this world of denial as this kid who's losing his sight. You're telling me that you're you're playing games with your brain to try to make. Is your family trying to prepare yeah. you? Are you preparing in any way, or were you just kind of trying to cope until until the last minute? You're just trying to cope. You're mm-hmm. just totally in denial. And my parents, yeah, they were gently trying to prod me to understand, like, hey, you know, this may this is going to happen. And 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 brothers, my brothers and my my sister, and teachers. And uh, all I did was just like reject them, you know, mm-hmm. like my my teacher, I, they, they brought in a teacher to try to teach me Braille. And I was like, I'm not blind. Like, you know, in my mind, I was like, how dare you like even mm-hmm. think that I'm blind? Mm-hmm. Like, I don't want to be blind. So like, I'm not going to learn these stupid things that blind people learn. So I would just fight. I would like lash out and try to destroy all the people that tried to give me help. Oh, sure. And it, I hope I'm not an a-hole for doing that but i I was an a-hole for doing that well i was just about to say that that before you said that was that i mean you know that was your reason and a very legitimate reason to be lashing out but you know there's plenty of eighth grade boys and that lash out for a billion different reasons so i mean it it was sort of a perfect storm of hitting you right in this time where yeah i mean any teenage boy at that point is in sort of turmoil about the world and their place in it and you've got this extra i don't know 50 ton weight that falls down on you so and they told me to use a cane too and that's the other thing i didn't want to use a cane because i was like that's a symbol of blindness so i would like i would step on my canes and bend them and i would throw them down sewer gratings and i would use them like my teacher my my cane teacher would say um like quit using your pole your 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 cane like a hiking pole Mm-hmm. So I'd be like just purposely using it incorrectly. Right, right. Well, that might have been prophetic, though. Yeah, yeah, right? exactly. <laughs> that was a little bit of prophecy of, of the future world. So yeah, I mean, when I, I I was reading about that and and your your you know transition into this, and as a former high school teacher, again thinking about just the weight of the world that's on a kid at that age, uh, who can just be an uh, an average kid that has angst. But the threat of being different, the threat of being singled out is is sort of terminally scary for a lot of kids who have no no really outward problems. So I, I kind of was thinking about you as moving into this, I mean, freshman in high school and you've got to have this cane and all these things that sort of single you out uh, must have been somewhat devastating. Well, yeah, you know, as you mentioned, you know, like every kid feels a little bit alienated mm-hmm. and I felt like I was really alienated like a... You know, you're one, you're like sort of like in Connecticut where I grew up, there were a lot of raccoons and they'd get into your house and sometimes you'd like come in and you'd corner them and they'd be eating your trash and they'd lash out at you. And I, yeah, that's pretty much me. I'm that raccoon lashing out, trying to claw the world. Mm -hmm. And the second thing, yeah, I feel like I'm the only person here. Like the rest of the world is is across this expanse and, you know, because I didn't want anyone to feel sorry for me to me that was the ultimate you know i'd rather like close up and hide in a little dark place and then let people think that i you know they should have pity on me because mm-hmm. uh, that was just humiliating to me i guess it was pride but i didn't want what i think i the way i described it was in the book was you know, like you're like an egg and you've cracked in the in the hallway 
and there's this gooey egg and it's kind of gross and everyone's stepping around it and they don't know quite how to deal with it and so you know I felt like that egg like I was cracked and I was just you know I didn't want to be a beggar accepting help uh, although I needed help so it was like this sort of crazy paradox Mm -hmm. and you know the other thing probably that happened was that you know because I lost so much sight and finally went totally blind you know what in my mind I started worrying that you know you get this sort of doom mindset where you think life is just a series of losing little bits of life and little bits of life until you're down to nothing you know so it's a lot that you have to fight out of psychologically too so let's talk about that fight because obviously we're sitting here uh, you, you made it through those years. And this is a climbing podcast, which sometimes is almost becomes a joke a little bit because <laughs> I keep saying that and we keep talking about other stuff, which is totally fine. But I do want to get to that because obviously the outdoors climbing adventure became, um, you know, some some sort of anchor for you. Yeah. But what were what can you point to any other sort of transitional moments in these years when you were when you were the raccoon? You were fighting, you were lashing out, um, things that happened or things you found or moments that, you know, started you on this path to this guy now who I'm sitting in front of. Well, a lot of the things I learned, unfortunately, I wish I was like this genius who could have epiphanies and just make these big leaps. But a lot of the things I learn are from just sort of flailing and bleeding my way forward. Mm -hmm. And, um, so I was walking down a dock. I wasn't using my cane properly. And um, I, it was at a time where I could see sort of double, like, and, and I could, I still remember the sight in my mind. Of, I could see the sort of wood rows of the dock in front of me, and I could see them. Maybe, maybe they went left, maybe they went right. Like, I wasn't sure. The sun was kind of in my face. And I just said, okay. And I took a step, and I went, oh, crap, wrong choice. And I flipped off the dock. I landed. I did a flip in the air, and I landed on my back on the deck of, the, of a boat. And... You know, and and then I tried to climb back up on the dock, and I had tons of splinters, like hundreds of splinters, all down my arm and stuff. And I thought, my God, you are so lucky. You could have literally just broken your neck there. Like that would have been game over. So I realized, you know, it it, it kind of was like being beat into submission. Mm-hmm. You realize there are these things that you cannot fight. It was my first lesson that there. are things that are bigger than you you can't fight that thing Mm. but you can also maybe influence other things in that world and you can sort of push the parameters of your life but you have to sort of give in to that basic thing that's bigger than you and so for me it was like learning how to use a cane that was the very first time I said, okay, this is what I got to do. And I, and I found that like, okay, reluctantly I'm using this thing and I'm not smashing into walls. I'm not falling off of docks. I'm walking down the hallway with my friends talking, having to, you know, telling jokes and dirty jokes and having a great time. I'm using my cane. They're walking with their eyes, but I'm, it's achieving the same thing. So when I got this letter in Braille of, of a group taking blind kids rock climbing um, through this program for the blind I thought yeah I'm going to say yes to this because I have no idea whether I can climb I mean it sounds sort of preposterous but it's how you'd stick yourself to the face of like I remember Connecticut there's not any climbing really too much a little bit and I ran my hand up the wall of my room and I thought this is crazy like stupid who would take a blind kid rock climbing 
and I signed up right away. I was so psyched and um, I loved it. <laughs> wait, did you? <laughs> wait, did you sign up to maybe possibly like prove them wrong that like taking blind kids climbing was a stupid no? Idea? They were the, okay. They were okay. taking blind kids rock climbing for the first time because they thought it was really cool. Okay, I just I was it sounded one. a little bit maybe you were like, well, they're wrong about this, and they're, I'm going to prove it. No way, I wanted to <laughs> okay, like. I had cool. no idea. I, okay. Yeah, I was just, but I did think it was stupid and preposterous. I was, how would you ever get yourself to stick to the side of a rock face? And then, and I can't even see, but I had this sliver of kind of openness. You know, I didn't want that door to be closed. Mm -hmm. It wasn't proving them wrong. They were proving me okay, wrong. You cool. Know? Well, it's, I, that was one of the questions I had. I was going to, you know, say, what made you think you could become a rock climber? And that, I phrased it like that because I thought, well, that's the question is, is what part of you said, even if it was preposterous, I've done this, I've done this, and, and this is another step that I can possibly do. But there sounds like it was just a very small voice in your head telling you that. It is a small voice. And mm -hmm. I'll tell you, you know, you know, you always hear in these popular movies and stuff, don't be motivated by fear. And I'll tell you, like, there was a lot of fear going in my brain at that time because... Um, I remember being led into school for the first time and being in, and being led to the cafeteria and I didn't know how to use a cane yet and I sat in the cafeteria, you know, at a table by myself listening to all the action, all the excitement, like food fights, food flying by and have, people joking and having so much fun out there <clears throat> and I'm sitting at this table by myself, mm -hmm. poor little blind guy and it was like I felt like I was in prison, you know, and I thought... That's the real fear. Sure, there's a little fear of not being able to see with your eyes anymore, but the real fear was living in this sort of semi-self-created prison. Mm -hmm. That was fear in your core. So for me, rock climbing was that little sliver of this is this is the opposite of sitting in the cafeteria. Mm -hmm. um, this is this is where the action is. Like you can literally get out of the walls. Exactly. You can climb out of the prison, sort of, yeah, so to speak. Yeah, you can climb out of the prison. So what did that day look like? Well, I was an athletic little kid. I was like 120 pounds at the time, and I wrestled. I, the wrestling was another outlet for me, which I was just discovering at the time. But um, rock climbing was, I don't even know how to describe it. It was so incredible, you know, like feeling my way up the rock face and feeling all these textures and patterns in the rock. And I know I couldn't use my eyes, but I could use my hands and my feet as my eyes and I could problem solve my way up the face. Kind of one looking at the patterns of the rock and trying to predict what was beyond the reach of my hand and trying to connect the dots, you know, like point A to point B to point C and how do you get your body to go from point A to point B to point C and then trying to do all these crazy angles and leverages and weird body positions that enable you to sort of unlock the puzzle in the rock. Mm -hmm. To me, that was just full-on adventure. It was so adventuresome. I loved every second of it. You know, left a lot of blood and skin on the rock, but I loved every second of it because it was so engaging. And that was uh, our first climb that I did uh, was uh, on... Uh, cathedral ledge in new hampshire and i remember we got up to the top of the first pitch and i'm sure it was like a really easy climb but it was so fun for me sitting up there on the ledge and i was just over tree line so i could hear the sound of space so so blind people use sound vibrations to to kind of get information sound vibrations moving out bouncing off of objects and coming back at you 
and I could hear the sound of space kind of moving out over the valley and I could hear the trees just below me and it must have been fall because I could hear the wind the leaves like blowing off the trees in that kind of crinkly way and I think you know they must have been building a hotel or something way off in the distance so I could hear a chainsaw which was giving me more sound vibration to work off of I could hear the whole scope of the valley below me and I just thought this is adventure this is this is it for me this mm -hmm. is you know and they'd taken us canoeing and uh and and sailing uh, all those are fun. Sailing was a little bit intricate with all the ropes and everything. Mm -hmm. Tandem biking was fun, a little bit repetitive, you know, canoeing was okay, but rock climbing, it met every definition of my sense of adventure. Oh, right on. And how how old were you about, do you remember? I was 16. You were 16, so sophomore, uh, junior year, kind of in, in high school. You know, you got through high school, you survived. Can you describe the person you were, you know, like we just did, you were walking in? as a freshman super scared to the kid who graduated the kid who walked out of high school well i went rock climbing a few more times that mm -hmm. in high school there weren't like really rock gems and stuff at that time sure. in the 80s but i did go up to new hampshire a few more times and climb with this great guy named mark chauvin and a guy named nick yardley they were the first guys on that first climbing session with the blind kids at the Carroll Center for the Blind. So those were great mentors to me. And I climbed with this guy. His name was Mark Chauvin, and he was a great mentor. He had really stinky feet. He still <laughs> climbs. So he was a perfect like representative of climbing, really smelly feet. And then he said, hey, biggest thing I can teach you is if you drop someone's piece of gear while you're cleaning the gear, you got to pay for it. Right. <laughs> that was the first thing I ever learned. And then the second thing he taught me was, he said, I'm honored by the way that you trust me, but, but you shouldn't trust people. You, you want to push yourself and get as independent as you possibly can. Um, so check my anchors, check my harness, mm -hmm. you know, make sure that you're not just blindly trusting the people. And I, I'm honored that you're trusting me, but don't do it. And that was great advice too. That saved my life a few times. But anyway, so yeah, I, I started climbing, uh, although not enough. And I also joined the wrestling team, and that was great because I was part of a team. And I think people crave to want to be part of things that are kind of bigger than them. And so for me as a boy wrestling, the team didn't baby me or treat me different. They pounded my head and my face into the mat just like every other kid. And uh, I love that. That was, to me, just the greatest thing, my first experience with a, a team. And it's funny how wrestling connects to climbing. I've met a lot of ex-wrestlers who are climbers. When you're groveling up a chimney or something and it's like flying in your face and mm -hmm. your hands are all cut and blood's flying everywhere, you go, what a wrestling match. Right. So wrestling was a great <laughs> prep for climbing. So I guess we're on this little arc of your climbing. Um, you, were, you graduated high school. You, what was next for you in terms, of, uh, in terms of the outdoors but also just in life? Well, I went on to BC, Boston College. Mm -hmm. I lived in... Uh, in Cambridge for a couple years. I loved that area because it was very accessible. I could ride the T, the trolley. The colleges had these great accessibility rooms where you could use computers and all kinds of things that talked and printed things out in Braille. So it was a very accessible place. And, uh, and I got a master's degree in education and I wanted to be a middle school teacher. And uh, I went on a job fair with my guide dog to New York City. And it was a it was a conference that were uh, hiring teachers all around the country. 
And I had been a little bit bored, you know, in Boston. Like, I remember one night, it was a Friday night, and I was playing Braille Scrabble with this friend of mine. She's blind as well. And the door, the window was open because it was kind of a hot night. And I could hear people like all like outside, like going to restaurants and bars and having fun outside. And I was inside playing Braille Scrabble. And I thought, okay, this feels a little bit like being in the cafeteria again. Uh -huh. I want to I get out. I want to branch out. And so I went on this job fair with my guide dog, and, they, and uh, a lot of schools thought a blind person could never be a teacher, like, you know, they even say straight up, I like what you do, I like your resume, you have good grades, but, I, you know, we could never convince our board to trust you, a blind person, with uh, our kids. So I got a lot of rejections, but I also got a few people who took notice, and I got this job out in Arizona, and uh, that is far from playing Braille Scrabble as I could possibly go. So mm -hmm. I was, found myself on a bus heading out to the desert. I didn't know anyone except one friend out there and got a middle school teaching job. And for the next six years, I just climbed every weekend. I joined the Arizona Mountaineering Club. One of the substitutes uh, at the school was a climber. And so we were just out in the desert climbing and Arizona's just full of rocks. Mm -hmm. So you're just a full-on rock rat addicted to climbing kind of guy in this time. Completely. Right. In fact, what's funny is uh, the guy that I started climbing with, his name's Sam Bridgem. He's still a friend. And uh, he had attention deficit disorder. So we were out climbing together. And, you know, I don't really know when I'm pushing my envelope here how to find the holds. I hadn't really learned to scan my hands in the right way, in a perfect way. And he's like, I'll just tell you. So I'll just say left hand, up a foot, left a foot. So I got into the situation, I was at, on some kind of roof, and, and I was like, Sam, where's the next hold? And he said, uh, your left hand, you know, up one foot, you know. And I reached up and I kind of like flailed up with like my last bit of strength. I was on a top rope, so it wasn't a big deal, but he's like, oh, I meant right hand. Right. So I, did, I didn't worry about these perfect partnerships, you know. It was a guy mm -hmm. who couldn't see mm -hmm. and a guy who couldn't concentrate and got his lefts and rights mixed up. We were the perfect team. Yeah, right. And I love that. He was the greatest guy in the world because like nobody else, he would stop in the outdoors and he would describe these beautiful, beautiful things that he was seeing, like mm -hmm. sunsets and rock faces. And uh, so I got to know a lot of the desert through his eyes. Mm -hmm. You know, I actually, uh, I hadn't mentioned this yet, but I actually guided Colorado Mountain School for years. And uh, we had, we worked with, uh, blind climbers as well yeah and uh it, th that reminded me because i'm a little bit bad with the left right thing yeah and uh it it wasn't a huge deal because again these folks were on top rope and a lot of the folks we took were it was a first time kind of thing people who were working on their skills and uh but it, it involved a lot of me apologizing all day <laughs> long to the point where at the end of the day usually everybody laughed it off as yeah calluses is not the best at telling us where to put our hands. Gotta be left. No, I mean right. No, I mean left. left. No, left, left, left. Yeah, so. Well, I, um, I, I actually uh, uh, got to volunteer to work with the um, uh, Colorado School for the Blind um, with that program, I think, for mm -hmm. a while, for a couple years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Bruce Andrews was just the greatest guy. Yeah. And he said, you know, he knew I didn't have that many climbing partners in town. Mm -hmm. And so he said, hey, come and volunteer with these blind folks and uh and then i'll uh hook you up with some guides so uh, when i just moved to colorado in 1997 he hooked me up with these great guides 
um, that I learned around my way around uh, El Dorado Canyon. Mm -hmm. So that was great. Yeah, actually, we would have sort of almost crossed paths because I worked for Bruce nice. for a little while too. Um, let me ask you a bit about rock climbing uh, since we can get into the nitty gritty on this podcast because uh, climbers are listening. What does it look like for you in terms of going rock climbing? Are you leading? Are you choosing routes are you always top roping what is it i think people are probably curious about what if your climbing looks the same as everybody else's or or obviously it doesn't quite but well, i've uh, never been like a hard hard climber you sure. know i like to climb mm -hmm. 10s and 11s and that's hard enough yeah it's hard enough for me <laughs> i love classic routes i mm -hmm. love beautiful routes that mm -hmm. are long i love adventure mm -hmm. so I like sport climbing. It's really fun for me. I love it. I mean, but, you know, if you ask me what jazzes me the most, it's mm -hmm. these long, beautiful routes. Like I climbed the East Buttress of uh, El Cap last fall, which was just heaven. You know, I love that, you know, where you're just pushing yourself. And then there's a big <laughs> descent as well. You know, it's just a big day of adventure. Um, but I do a little of everything. I mean, I, 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 uh, I do like sport climbing. Um, I, I do lead. You know, I'd probably do more top roping, but if I find something that I like, I'll I'll go lead it. If I haven't climbed it before, um, instead of on sighting, my friends call it non sighting, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, and and I've led some you know some things or in in um, you know in in El Dorado like like the Wind Tower and the Bastille and things like that, mm -hmm. and so. Um, just like I, I love leading, I love placing gear. If I'm gonna trad lead, I, I do like to I do like to climb it first, so sure. I can kind of memorize where the placements are. Um, so yeah, I, I can I continue to do that and led a little bit in Yosemite when I was there last uh, last fall. Um, but you know, a lot of the days where we're just like moving fast sure. up a long route, which I love to do. You know, for me, I think, okay, I could, I could lead, which maybe I'll lead a pitch or two. But for me, it's really more about just be efficient. Like, mm -hmm. don't be the guy who's, like, dragging everyone down and sure. slowing them down. So just, you know, learn how to climb on a top rope and move fast as a blind person, like, efficiently. Be able to take gear out quickly. Like, don't hold up the team. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> the, the, don't be a sack of potatoes that's holding everyone back. Right. So let's uh, move on to talking about... Uh, mountaineering as well and when did that kind of come into the picture as as a pursuit that eventually put you on top of Everest well I was climbing in the desert in Arizona with that friend of mine Sam mm -hmm. Bridgham and we were climbing something I think it was a route in Lunar Land in Queen Creek outside of uh, Phoenix and it was called Ride the Wild and uh, I was leading it it was a sport climb it was really fun and then I, I brought Sam up, and then, it, and then we were on the top of this tower, and, and he said, he said, you're getting pretty good. He's like, we should try something bigger. And so in my mind, I'm thinking, oh, like what? Like go down to Tucson and climb something taller, like Mount Lemmon or something? And he said, how about Mount McKinley or Denali? And I was like, isn't that like a big snowy mountain right. in Alaska? <laughs> Isn't that about as far from uh, rock climbing in the desert as you could possibly be? So a lot of these adventures become, you know, happen like that for me. Like somebody just plants the seed mm -hmm. and it just opens a sliver of that door open a little bit more. And at first I got oh, stupid like I did when I got that letter in Braille. 
when I was 16. But um, the other part of me goes, oh, that's kind of cool. Like, under, really? Like, could that be done, you know? Um, you know, probably a lot of people can relate to that, you mm -hmm. know? Um, when I did the Leadville 100 bike, mountain bike ride, it was me and a friend at a garage party drinking beers, and he's like, let's do Leadville. Yeah, let's do it. You wake up the next morning slightly hungover and go, what? Right. So that's the way it was with Denali. I was like, yeah, let's do it. And, uh, and then it was a year and a half of training, getting ready for this mountain. And, and, and it kind of taps into this thing I, I think about a lot now. And I, get, I guess I call it metacognition, which is like kind of accepting and knowing what you don't know. And I knew I was clueless in the mountaineering world. So how do I go on the fast track to learning everything I want to learn and be okay with that, like be vulnerable and be okay with that. And I found lots of people in the Arizona Mountaineering Club who like put it, took us under their wing and taught us tons of stuff about crevasse rescue and, you know, just how to move on snow and ice axes and stuff, how to rope up. And then um, found a lot of great mentors, and uh, and we we uh, worked with a guide, Craig Van Hoy, who uh, we tried to go up Rainier and Mount Hood and things like that in the winter as we were getting started and just learning a ton. I don't think we summited anything, mm -hmm. uh, but but I learned a lot. And uh, by the time it was uh, <clears throat> June, ready to head to Denali, me and Sam and our several other partners, like we were ready. So that was cool. And by the way, you know. One of the things we planned to do was Sam's idea. Again, not a very linear thinking thinking person. He said, let's go uh, climb Long's Peak. That'll be good training. Mm -hmm. And we'll do it in January. Right. Like, well, okay. So I go to Colorado. Um, it's like 100 mile an hour winds. Um, we didn't even get close to the summit. We, I think we got a little higher than the boulder field before we just got hammered by wind back backwards and came down and... I, I remember I'd lost my goggles, uh, mm -hmm. and uh, so I, uh, uh, my eyelids were frozen together as we as we climbed our way as we hiked down the mountain, and we were getting picked up and slammed around on the you know by the wind. And Sam lost a snowshoe, he, you know, meaning we weren't very organized, right. you know, and he was limping on one snowshoe like you know a long way out in deep snow, and I remember getting to the parking lot, my eyelids were frozen together. Uh, which isn't a big deal. Like, I don't see out of my eyes, but it's still kind of <laughs> weird, like, thawing out my eyelids. Dummy didn't wear his goggles. Sure. And I love that because I was like, you know, Sam, I think we're ready. Right. We're a junk show, but we're we're ready, you know? And it was that moment where you kind of, like, have... You're standing on the beach, and you've, like, tipped one toe into the water, and you're just... You, you need that catalyst to say, you know, I don't think I'm ready. And so Long's Peak was that for us. Well, it could have very well been the worst weather than anything you experienced on your actual Denali climb, other than that. Totally was. I mean, that place is insane, like in the wintertime. It was crazy. Yeah. It was insane. Yeah, I remember I, I, just being picked up and right. slammed down into the snow. I had a friend tell, because I tried to solo the diamond in winter, one <laughs> idiotic winter, and uh, just kept at putting ropes on it and stuff. And, and a friend from Denver who had guided on Makalu and all these other places and he said yeah the worst weather I've ever seen is on Long's Peak in the winter like, yeah of all the things I've ever done like it's super gnarly up there <laughs> so now, when you said right when you said Long's Peak I was like I bet he's gonna have a story about horrible wind <laughs> <laughs> it was yeah. so the Denali climb went all right it went all right and cool. uh tons of suffering like it definitely notched me up in terms of what the human mind and body could endure mm -hmm. suffering wise mm -hmm wrestling nothing had ever quite prepared me 
So there were days I'd get to my tent and I'd just be almost in tears. You know, like one day I remember climbing up to high camp and then coming back down, you know, because we cached gear and, and, and the trail, you know, you don't want to step too far off the trail because of crevasses, but it was, everybody was walking and they were stepping in these frozen boot holes. I couldn't see the holes and I just kept slipping and sliding into these deep holes and like wrenching my shins and just slipping and sliding and blisters were popping open on my feet and I was just so utterly completely crushed and just got into my tent and was like I don't know if this life is for me you know like mm -hmm. this is I don't think I'm tough enough for this um, but you know the other side of you uh, is you know wants to just kind of like take a nap and wake up and have a you know <laughs> and have a new day before you so um, we we actually believe it or not summit day was easier than the other days because mm -hmm. i didn't have a big pack on and there weren't boot holes and i could just step my way forward up this nice hard snow and uh, we summited and we found out later it was helen keller's birthday it was june 27th <laughs> it was pretty crazy <laughs> that's rad yeah <laughs> yeah so it, it didn't i mean you just said it crushed you like day after day but it obviously didn't crush you enough to not want to keep doing it yeah because everybody knows who climbs knows that like you know you come back and you're just like these pat the pack crushing your internal organs and you're like all hunched over and your windburn on top of uh sunburn on top of windburn my brothers met me at base camp they flew into the Cahilton glacier and they my dad and my wife and they uh they they said it look it's a sasquatch coming right. so I, i'm sure i looked pretty gross um, very crusty, but uh, you forget all that right immediately and like after you you know you 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 take your week long nap, you wake up and you 're like you 're just thinking about the next thing it 's very addicting mm -hmm. so when you talked a minute about climbing east east butt on l cap, this idea of like you know, I want to be the most efficient partner I can. I want to be a sack of potatoes. <laughs> um, I, I often ask this, of, of especially of mountaineers, people who go into the Alpine, and maybe you have an interesting perspective on it, but, you know, for all the things that, that maybe you have to rely on other partners for, what do you think you personally sort of bring to the table as a partner when you go on these expeditions that may be unique or, uh, you know, you... You obviously continue to find people who want to be involved in your adventures. Your book, you know, just was this list after list of these great people who, who wanted to be involved in what you were doing. So something's got to bring them to the table. What do you think it is? Well, one, you like people, right? And people like you. And they like you because beyond climbing, they mm -hmm. like you because they like hanging out with you. you. You know, you just have things in common. And, and hopefully, and I've had friends tell me like they appreciate my gratitude and like sort of like my approach to life. So you just want to be together, and that makes that draws you in and wants and you know you find your climbing partners in that way. Mm -hmm. And then the key is, yeah, what can I contribute? So can we go out and have a big day out climbing and having fun and laughing and sweating and suffering and bleeding together? And you know this blind guy isn't going to like drag him down or do something unsafe or mm -hmm. or. Um, you know, draw us into a helicopter rescue or something. So, so there's just honestly that too, like just being able to contribute efficiently to the team moving forward up the mountain. That I think is understated for most people. Um, I may not 
you know, my, my idea of leadership, um, and you have to think about this when you're, when you're blind uh, a lot more maybe, is that I don't have to be the fastest person. I'm not going to be the fastest person. But I do want to be efficient, and I do want to be able to do as much as I can independently. I want to be able to cook on a stove, boil the water one night. I want to be able to set up the tent and be able to do that and not be, like, standing there while everyone else sets up the tent. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to, like... Um, That's cold anyway. Yeah. Just standing there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or, like, the other day, I was uh, in Quebec, outside of Quebec. We were climbing a, a, a frozen waterfall called La Palme d'Or, and... My friend's outside shoveling some snow for water, and I said, let me, uh, like, lay out your sleeping bag and blow up your air mattress. You know, like, just something. Like, you sure. want to contribute to some way. So that's, that's sort of my model of leadership is contribute in some way to the team just moving forward. Mm-hmm. And, and then uh, be grateful and, uh, and don't be a sack of potatoes. Right. <laughs> that kind of comes down to it. That's good uh, advice, I think, across the board. Um, the, no, that'll be the, your next, the name of your next book. Yeah. Uh, don't be a sack of potatoes. <laughs> um, so, okay, cool. So in this progression, you're saying how any adventure, you come up with it on the spur of a moment, and it starts to kind of feed into your brain, and maybe that is possible, and, and things come up. But there is this progression towards kind of bigger things, and, and you ended up uh, climbing Everest, writing a book about it. You were the first uh, blind person to, to summit Everest, right? Yes. Okay. The only um, one so far. Only one. A few, few have tried, though, and okay. they, they probably will. All right. I just, I always read the first, so I assume there had been a second. <laughs> so. Yeah. Um, no second yet. No, no second yet. Um, so, do you think that's... Uh, I mean, are you someone who's trying to top yourself or are these just these these crazy adventures that pop up and you're just the kind of guy that just doesn't say no? Or are there things that you've said no to and, and, and said, no, I think that either we'll put it on the back burner for now or, or, or do something else? I think all those, probably all the above, okay. right, are, are probably true. Um, how you take the things that you want to do, like how you choose them, you know, because you can't do everything. Um, yeah, I, I have. I do have trouble saying no. <laughs> that is true. Does your wife say yeah. stuff like that yeah. to you? Yeah. <laughs> um, I get excited by things. I, I'm very um, impressionable. I get. I, I get. Uh, I get carried away with ideas. Uh, and I guess I'm not trying to top myself, although maybe I am sometimes. Mm-hmm. I remember there was this climb in Arizona. I can't remember, but I was with the Arizona Mountaineering Club. And this lady went up and tried to lead the climb. And it was a trad climb. And, uh, and she wasn't wearing a helmet. It was really dumb. And, 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 and she, went, she fell at this crux. And she went flying off and smacked her head on the rock. Blood kind of splattered on my arm, I remember. She was rushed off to the Jesus. hospital. And somebody's like, well, you know, certainly you're not going to lead that. And I was like, in my mind, I was like, oh, yeah. And then I went up and led it. And the, the section she fell on, I almost fell, but I got a piece in and I somehow made it through. And I thought, you are such an idiot because you're doing things like reacting to the way the world is reacting to you. Mm-hmm. That's as reactionary as the world is. Like, don't be a reactor. Like, don't just be doing things to prove that you can do this or that. Like, eventually that may kill you. So I'm very careful. Like I try to make sure I stop that thing in me that wants to go d- prove 
that blind people can do this or that because that's kind of ultimately a shallow way to climb. It's mm-hmm. a shallow reason to climb. And so I, I really try to be motivated by joy and excitement and adventure and, you know, just like what's exciting out there and what's going to help me grow as a person uh, and evolve in some cool way and maybe make some new discoveries or maybe come home with some new gifts of life. Uh, and, and what kind of team are there people that I want to climb with and, and, and what are their ideas? So I try to keep it positive and not be like, I'm going to try to do the harder and harder things mm-hmm. because that, that'll... I think that I think that leads to one maybe injury or death, and I also think that leads to um, a sense of unfulfillment. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But Everest was one of those things that intrigued me because, of course, there are a lot of naysayers who said, you know, you're going to go kill yourself, and yeah, let's fire you up for sure, you right. know. But uh, you know, the people I climbed with at the time, who you know, I'd been on, you know, you go on this twenty our epic adventure you know and you know you're just trudging through the snow and those people turn to you and they say you know you can do this like you're as strong as anyone there in fact you're stronger than most people that go to Everest and sure. and uh, you're more qualified than 90% of the people on that mountain and so I think it was partly listening choosing to listen to the right people and then like somehow letting the the critics or the naysayers sort of letting go and just saying I'm not gonna I choose not to believe those people mm-hmm and so when it when it all was said and done, was it was it as hard? Was it harder? Did it did it sort of meet your expectations in terms of of the adventure that you were on? It did. It was epically hard and adventuresome. It, I I remember um, just the Kumbu Icefall, for instance. A lot of people talk about where a lot of the risk happens on the mountain. Sort of the all climbers out there, but I mean, like it's the place where. <clears throat> the glacier's running down the mountain and it sort of drops off a cliff and then kind of explodes down the mountain uh, like a river of ice and, you know, moves and shifts. And it's not a... It doesn't meet Americans with Disability Act standards. <laughs> so, it, For all the sort of yeah. poo-pooing on Everest. It, yeah. yeah it, it's it, serious it, business in there. You don't want to be in the ice fall that long because mm-hmm. you're trying to move quickly through it. And maybe like the average time... I could be getting this slightly off, but it's like maybe eight, seven, eight hours the first time. I took 13 hours, and I knew that was too slow. I was endangering my whole team, you know, by being in the icefall too long. And so I had to speed up, and I had to figure out how to navigate that kind of impossibly blind, unfriendly terrain faster. And the way I did it was I learned, you know, one, you sort of map the route a little bit. You map the sections like the little crevasses that you're zigzagging across snow bridges. You kind of map the zigzags. You get faster on the ladders. You lock. I learned to lock my crampon points over the rungs and lock down and know whether there's a good step. Mm-hmm. You stop hesitating. Like when you're having to jump across little crevasses, you just, you know, my friends tap where they want me to land and I just jump and land in those boot marks. You you know, my friends started doing things like the right fixed lines. They put their hand on the right line, and I just feel their hand, and I clip my uh, my cow's tail into the right rope. So there were just all these little tiny efficiency things that we started implementing and getting faster and more efficient, and obviously you get stronger as well as you acclimatize. And my last time up the ice fall, I broke five hours. I was really, really proud. So you went from 13 to 5. Yeah. Oh, sick. So I went from 
I mean, you pretty must be desperately like slow to average through there. <laughs> yeah, but still, I mean, I'll be an average sighted person. I'm fine right. with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I felt like I was booking. Yeah. In fact, we went up to Camp Two in one day, and nothing was as hard as the ice fall. The rest of the mountain. In fact, uh, Summit Day, I'd had bad days on mountains. Mm-hmm. I'd had tough days, like Aconcagua. I remember I just, uh, I hadn't been sleeping. I have glaucoma. I had glaucoma in my eyes. And that creates really high pressure in your eyeballs. So when I climbed Aconcagua, it was like somebody had jabbed a fork in my eye. I was just Mm -hmm. like so in pain. I couldn't sleep. And I thought that was the end of my climbing career. So when I summited that mountain, I hadn't been sleeping. I hadn't been acclimatizing. My eye felt like I was just, you know, I couldn't think of anything else except how bad my eye hurt. And I was, and I just remember just being crushed, perceiving the world through a straw my teammate would say turn left and or go left and i go i think he said left you know and just remember that being a really hard day and getting down and just puking my guts out at high camp um, but everest on the other hand i had a great day and i summoned i remember being so strong feeling so good at twenty nine thousand feet you know people said uh you know you you know you have to think up there you know your brain kind of gets a little reptilian and you uh so so i thought being blind and not being able to think that's like a big problem in the death zone (laughs) yeah (laughs) but i didn't i could think and i wasn't like on crazy amounts of oxygen or Mm -hmm. anything i was just on like the normal amount of oxygen that people use like two liters and um getting down and just feeling strong and uh and being so psyched that I had this great team around me. 19 of us reached the summit that day. And by the way, none of these people were like paid. I didn't have, I, I didn't hire guides or anything mm-hmm. like that, which I have done before. It's all great, but these were all friends. And uh, people said we'd have a disaster up there and instead 19 out of 21 reached the summit. At the time it was the most people to reach the summit of Everest in a single day. Mm-hmm. Most of us stood on top at the same time. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, and you wrote uh what it's called Touch the Top of the World. Yeah. About that. Yeah. And that was cool, you know, like I I had great friends, you know. Um that's why I think maybe I I mean I love the outdoors. I love the view. You know, I can't see the view with my eyes, but I can feel it through my hands and I can hear it. Mm-hmm. I can sense it. But I will say that's the amazing part just being with friends and uh you know, I'm, I'm not, I, I don't do too many things solo mm-hmm. as right. a blind person. I don't right. ski solo. I don't kayak solo. Like, I always have guides. Although I do run with my dog up on the mesa behind my house. That's one of the few things we do. But even that, I'm with my dog. Right. So, yeah, like, uh, but I, I think I like that component of the outdoors. Mm-hmm. You're something of an evangelical for climbing and sort of its, I, I don't know, its intrinsic benefits. I know you've, you've brought other blind kids climbing that's in your book no barriers climbing in tibet um i am too i'm I'm an evangelical for for its mystical properties whatever there it's mythical properties whatever it happens to be that makes it so amazing yes but if you you know were pitching it as the thing that's been so important to you to other blind people uh as something to try as something to get into and you know what what do you think you would be your pitch? I mean, what are you telling them in terms let, of what it does? By the way, let alone blind people. Yeah. I've brought every walk of life into the mountains. Okay. From kids who are they're poor to kids with learning disabilities sure. to kids with cognitive challenges to kids, people who can barely move a muscle. 
to people with full heart transplants, to people who with obesity, to people who have had tons of strokes. It's like a great unifier, the outdoors. So mm -hmm. it's really cool. And, you know, like I love people like they surf and they go, oh, surfing is like the way to transform. And it's like, well, I love golf. Golf is the way to transform. No, it could be any of these things. Mm -hmm. It could be any of these things. It's whatever the Don't catalyst. Don't say that, sir. <laughs> it's it's what, special. <laughs> it's not the same. <laughs> it is whatever the catalyst may be, but the outdoors sure. is the secret. Right. It's the outdoors. It's, it's the greatest laboratory, you know, to sort of think about your potential and to kind of go through a process, a journey, whatever that journey looks like, sometimes to rebuild. And whatever it is, and I, I don't want to move into the cheesy, but I, I, just, I do think it's a spiritual thing. It, it, I used to avoid that topic, mm -hmm. but I do think there's a spiritual sense to the outdoors because it makes you feel like you're part of something. And it kind of like you have those days where you get crushed and you kind of get rebuilt in a way. And then, you know, and, and I guess as we get older, like you, you get stripped, you, you, you build up crust. And the outdoors, <laughs> yeah, psychological crust and a little physical crust, by the way. No, I know about crust. Yeah, yeah <laughs> that's why little, I'm laughing. We get a little crusty. <laughs> I'm a little crusty these days. But you go into the outdoors, you can't lie, you can't cheat, you can't, you can't fake it. You're, you can't pretend, you can't, you know, have a big ego. You get crushed and it, it kind of opens you up to whatever that is inside that's sort of like core and that sort of makes you feel connected. There's no longer like crust between you and the and the world. And I, I love that. That's to me what I love. I come home sort of refreshed somehow. And I think that's for people like especially who have been injured or or are protecting themselves and and are trying to rebuild their lives. The, the 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 brain is a great sort of neuroplasticity kind of uh, experiment where you can like reprogram the brain and you can have this great new journey that sets you in a new trajectory. I want to ask you before we get done here because uh, your your book that I just read that you're you've just finished you just you said spent a year getting fat and writing um, no barriers really the the kind of piece it revolves around is you kayaking the Grand Canyon. And uh, it's a running sort of thing on the show occasionally that, uh, aside from ice climbing, which uh, <laughs> I have this sort of hate, it's not love-hate, it's like I can handle it and hate it relationship. <laughs> yeah. um, kayaking for me is the, is the thing that I probably don't need to bother with. <laughs> and uh, so it's fascinating to me. It's fascinating because it's so different from climbing uh, in my mind in the sense that it's a dynamic medium you know rocks don't usually move on you um it's fast while i think climbing is incredibly slow just you know yeah. just watch it for a few minutes nothing <laughs> happens um so let's talk a little bit about kayaking what made you again as a framing question made you think you could be a kayaker <laughs> and also yeah some of those differences in what that challenge brings that climbing doesn't or or maybe some of the similarities yeah the way you talk about it i think i i agree that's like yeah sort of maybe the antithesis of climbing in certain ways but it has a little bit of overlap but sure it's yeah, an climbing, adventurous sport i mean yeah but yeah. you're right it's so different you know and like that's the thing i thought like okay like climbing is going to prepare me for these you know other adventures right and it didn't it was like <laughs> it kind of laid me out see i'm right 
think you're right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm not doing it. Thank you for, for <laughs> confirming that. Climbing is nice and slow. It works right. for my nice German brain of like m- being methodical and careful and cautious mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. you know, laying it out there from time to time, but not laying it out there all the time. And then kayaking was like fast and furious. And I think the mountains are big in that way where you can't conquer a mountain. You know, it's bigger than you. And you just kind of sneak to the summit while the mountain takes a little nap or something. And then you get the heck out of there. Kayaking maybe in that way is a little bit like that where it's a force that's bigger than you. And so you're not like taking this situation and trying to bring it totally under control. You're trying to control some of it, but some of it you can't control. Uh, it's like riding this massive energy force that's bigger than you. And in a way, that became part of the theme of the book. Like, that was one of my things that I was struggling with. How do you, you know, how do you confront these forces like a river that are so big? And in a way, it's not about asserting control. It's about letting go a little bit and mm-hmm. trying to just ride these forces, knowing that you're not really in charge totally. Uh, so it was great. And for me, the way it got started was I was guiding a group of blind people down the Grand Canyon. I was one of their leaders, and uh, we just did the first half. We hiked out at Phantom Ranch, and uh, one of the guys on that trip was this amazing guy, Harlan Tanney. He was the kayaking safety guide. You know, he's speeding around in the river, getting to the spots where uh, people needed, you know, p- people needed help. Mm-hmm. And they were, uh, you know, we were. I, I was ducking, and a lot of the kids were like on rubber duckies, and we were, we were chesting out some of the baby rapids. But at the end of that adventure. He said, hey, you should learn to hard shell kayak, and I'll come back, and I'll, and I'll take you down the whole river. And it was like, same thing as always, just like You're my like, brain went, stupid. yeah, right, that's <laughs> the stupidest idea. And then uh, it was like another little wedge and just opened up, and I thought, I wonder if that's, is that even possible? Mm-hmm. And Rob Raker, who is my, one of my climbing partners, we were climbing Losar in the Himalayas, this beautiful ice face, and we'd gotten down after this long day, and you know, as a climber, you're dreaming of everything but climbing, you know, like, and I remember our team member, our teammate PV, who was our team leader on Everest, saying, the worst day on the river is better than the best day on the mountains. Mm-hmm. Now, I know that's very subjective, but what he's talking about is like, it's sun and, you know, you can bring food and beer and you don't have to carry everything on your back. Sure. And, you know, you can take baths in the, in the river. Anyway, so I, I said, hey, would you teach me how to roll? And he said, oh yeah, in two hours into it he taught me how to roll and then i said hey how about i want to try maybe like a like a basic river like maybe like the green river my family could raft why we kayak would you guide me down the river and he said yeah i'll do it and that began a six-year journey to learn to kayak and then ultimately take uh, harlan up on his offer and uh kayak down the whole grand canyon and harlan was like a river yoda to me he's a great friend but he's also like he taught me a lot about the mindset of of kayaking you know, you can flip, uh, you can roll. In fact, you're going to get knocked over a lot. It's not like climbing where, you know, like sometimes you don't want to fall. Kayaking, you get knocked over a lot. You know, mm-hmm. it's totally, perfectly okay to get knocked over. Mm-hmm. Although, well, I'm not going to talk about it at the end of the book, but <laughs> it wasn't quite perfectly okay. It wasn't okay. <laughs> there's, a lot of, there's a lot of fear. In fact, for me, kayaking was the hardest, scariest thing I've ever done. It was terrifying. It has to be. It was I terrifying. Mean, you're, you're at the mercy. I mean, you're just like in the river, you, you know, even leading, you can throw a piece of gear in and flip hang. in and stop. Yeah. And then everything stops other than unless there's lightning or, I mean, those few brief yeah. times when you've got to get out of there. But 
but everything stops and you collect yourself. Did they say climbing is a lot of boredom intermixed with moments of sheer terror? Kayaking, I think, was like mostly sheer terror and it intermixed with moments of, <laughs> of, of fun. Right. And, <laughs> and breathing and, and like <laughs> relaxing. So, yeah, there's no breaks. And so right. you go in and you just, I can't see what's happening. I have a friend, friends who are behind me. Again, not doing crazy stuff, but like I have a team of friends around me. There's one guy guiding me through these high-tech radio system, communicates in relative real time. And he's saying, small left, small right, charge, mm-hmm. which means hammer that rapid, that, that wave that's about to knock you over. Sometimes I'd even try to say brace left, but a lot of times those commands are hard to time. So a lot of it's just reacting and feeling what's under my boat and getting hammered and getting trying to react and trying to react to what my friends are telling me and, um, and trying to just let your mind be still. And there were moments of that by the end where, you know, it, it was past my brain. Like my brain was just an impediment in the process. I was definitely down in the nervous system, sort of experiencing the river. And those brief moments are beautiful and they're worth it, even though there's kind of a lot of fear to kind of work through before you get those brief flashes. So, yeah, you just mentioned Rob uh, as as a guy that was, you know, integral in this kayaking thing and also your climbing past as well. You also mentioned Mark Wellman, who's kind of a legend in terms of, of ha- having lost use of his legs and still maintaining this incredible climbing career. And in No Barriers, and I mentioned this earlier about your friends and these people that are attracted to your adventures to come on these things with you and you know when these little germs happen at the party and you wake up slightly hungover and but you put the call out and there's people that are like let's do this so can you talk about some of those folks yeah well i think the most important the most seminal kind of moment was getting to climb with mark wellman and hugh her mark paraplegic he fell in the sierras he thought his climbing life was over but he learned this crazy system of being basically doing pull-ups up the rock face and his friend sets anchors the rope and Mark climbed El Capitan and first paraplegic to do that just broke through massive barriers, 7,000 pull-ups in eight days. That's like, my God. And Hugh Her, who some of you may not know is a double leg amputee. He built his own climbing feet, uh, little climbing feet that, you know, he used to wedge into cracks, like seams, like no, not even human foots, could, you know, human feet could barely stand up in these things. So you know, he became a better climber as an amputee than when he had legs in certain ways. And, uh, and now he runs the biomechatronics laboratory at MIT building, you know, $60 million legs for people. But I got to climb with these guys, ancient art out near Moab. And we were like teenage mutant ninja turtles. We were this broken team. And I looked at those guys and I thought, what is that light that is inside people? You know, this Mark Wellman, he's, Climbing is not easy for him. He's scraping and bleeding his way up these like chimneys and there's like dirt falling in his face. And, you know, I hate to be graphic, but like, you know, Paris wear a pee bag like uh, over their over their penis and his pee bag ripped off. And, you know, so the guy smelled like urine. And I thought you have to endure so much suffering to do these things like nobody thinks about what that map looks like between whatever that safe, dark place is and whatever the mountain top looks like. And so for me, more than an adventure book, No Barriers was like trying to illuminate what that map looks like for people. And uh, so I kind of delved into this map, like this murky, 
path that people take uh, on their road to doing whatever they want to do. And in that process, I studied like amazing people that are my heroes, like uh, Kyle Maynard, who has uh, has arms and legs missing at the knees and at the elbows, and he climbs mountain. He climbed Aconcagua. Mm -hmm. I mean, crabbed his way to the top of Aconcagua. Right, right. Uh, just so people like that, I wanted to understand them better, and not just people with physical disabilities either, but people who had been sort of crushed psychologically, uh, mentally as well, and how do they rebuild. And, uh, and I found that these people spiral out in that rebuilding process. They spiral out in these pretty crazy, awesome new directions, and it leads them to these great new discoveries. So for me, it was an awesome thing to learn and, and, and sort of figure out. So, it's, I mean, it's a little bit of a cliche i suppose to talk about the silver lining or the good from the bad or or however it gets played out but listening to you for an hour here and reading your book um no barriers you know it's kind of this crazy thing where these opportunities you know for lessons for wisdom for uh whatever you want to call it have come out of this thing that you know i don't even want to say it happened to you it was something that was in your fate or it was in this this thing that that you were born with is 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 that in your perspective in terms of that or uh, I heard know. a blind person being interviewed at No Barriers the other day and they were mm -hmm. like blindness was a gift and I was like I don't know yeah I don't know that. about I don't that know if that's I'm what I mean that I'm like treading into that yeah but, yeah I don't know right. if I go that far I think I would I would take to see if I could uh, <laughs> okay good All yeah right. so so that I'm like a little bit realist little in that bit. way yeah. right. but I will say this what it, what the great paradox is. Mm -hmm. And there's really not an answer. It's just a great paradox is that, you know, in kayaking, for instance, you try to stay on the line. The line is the easiest and most and safest way through mm -hmm. life, through the rapid. And yeah, you try to desperately stay on that line. You hardly ever do. But every now and then you do. And it's cool. And you're psyched. And that's what you're trying to do. But but believe it. And, and by the way, the, the, you know, if you fall off the line, you're, you know, your your chances of emerging on the other side safe and sound are like reduced. But at the same time, that's for you. That's for you. You learn everything right. it's off the line. So I'm not saying that, you know, like it's good to be blind. But <laughs> uh, what I am saying, and what I do make an argument for the book is that there are ways to take the shit that absolutely destroys you, and find a way to um, to kind of build a map and that that sort of makes your life awesome and not mm -hmm. this tragedy. Sure. Well, thanks a lot. It's been amazing sitting down with you. I'm so glad that we hooked up and, uh, and you invited me into your home, which is, is nice. also extra special. And uh, this has been an amazing hour. I really awesome. appreciate you sitting down. Was it okay to say shit on your podcast? Oh, totally. We okay. can say shit and All right, good. whatever else. <laughs> so, nice. But thanks a lot for, uh, for hanging out with us. Thank you. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening, and thanks to Eric for sitting down and having me in his house and everything else. What a pleasure to talk to the guy. Just a genuine, honest guy, sharing all that about losing his sight when he was a fragile teenager. My God, teenagers are having a hard enough time the way it is. Check out his book, No Barriers, anywhere they sell books, which is pretty much a couple places these days, it feels like. Also, the organization that he works with, no Barriers. I believe it's at NoBarriersUSA.org. Maybe you can get involved, find out what they're up to, helping people enjoy the outdoors. 
yeah, the guy's working hard to change the world. So, got to support him. Also, you can support the Enormacast by going to enormacast.com and clicking on the Help Out tab. Is that as important as what Eric is doing? No, it is not. But, you know, you guys are enjoying it. So, consider helping out. Click on the tab. Much things you can do, including donating if that's what you feel like doing. Don't like to beg. But, hey, if you want to kick down a little bit of money for the episodes you've listened to, feel free. All right. Beautiful weather out here in Colorado. It is coming into its own as far as climbing season. So everybody get out there, have fun, and of course, remember to check your knot. What kind of bike do you have? It's a sledgehammer. Dang. You got shocks, pegs, lucky. You ever take it off any sweet jumps? You got like three feet of air that time. Can I try it really quick?